0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.tv, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in your podcast app. I'm going to be giving the second talk, and we're, we're sort of shifting from the hormone sensitive to the ADT resistant metastatic prostate cancer space. And, you know, it sometimes goes by the unfortunate term of castration resistance, but I'll, I'll talk about the, the definition and, and why we think that this split matters in how we think about treating a cancer once it's become resistant to the testosterone lowering therapies like lupron and just like in hormone sensitive prostate cancer we continue to see a lot of new developments in the ADT resistance setting and and a lot of exciting uh, work that's ongoing in phase 3 trials I'll show you a timeline of all the FDA approved therapies over the last 10-12 years and you know really uh, think that it, outcomes continue to improve uh, for patients that have this type of prostate cancer. So start with the definitions. You know, how do we define resistance to androgen deprivation therapy? You know, classically, this is really represented by consecutive rises in PSA with a concomitant testosterone level less than 50 while receiving androgen deprivation therapy. I underline consecutive because isolated rises in PSA are not enough to really define resistance. We know that at very low PSA levels, fluctuations are very common. And so we spend a lot of time with patients trying to reassure them that, you know, these small fluctuations at low levels do not represent resistance. We really want to see that consistent trend over time. Less commonly, Occasionally, we'll see patients have a very low PSA or a suppressed PSA, but develop evidence of progression by scans or by symptoms. And in particular, we worry about a type of uh, a more aggressive prostate cancer called neuroendocrine cancer that can progress in that fashion. Luckily, this is fairly uncommon. So the most common way that resistance is seen is with these consecutive rises in PSA. So just wanted to cover some, this is obviously a broad, broad area, and I can't, you know, go or don't want to go into all the details of all the therapies. So I really wanted to cover, you know, what are some of the general principles and just show you kind of all the different modalities of therapy that we think about, and really the discussion between you and your physician or, or provider about, you know, what makes the most sense at this juncture in time in my treatment. The good news is that survival outcomes continue to improve, and we're objectively seeing that by the median survival times reported in all the the Phase three ADT-resistant metastatic studies that are reported now versus five years ago versus 10 years ago versus 15 years ago when docetaxel chemotherapy came out, we see continued improvements in survival. And this is analogous in some ways to the the advances that have been seen in metastatic breast cancer, where incrementally and through time with each advance and each new therapy, survival outcomes are improving. Since 2010, there have been 11 new FDA approved therapies for ADT resistant metastatic prostate cancer. That's a rate of nearly one new therapy per year. And I expect that to continue. There's a lot of of funding, a lot of drug companies, a lot of academic institutions really focused on continuing to improve outcomes in this setting. We like to you know, think about clinical trial options throughout the, the, the journey in the treatment of prostate cancer and not necessarily thinking about trials just at the end with patients have exhausted all their standard of care options. It's really a matter at each juncture in time, how do we intersperse what might be a good clinical trial option and going from standard of care to a clinical trial, then maybe back to standard of care and really maximizing the benefit out of each one of the therapies that we apply. And then I do think that it's critically important that even as much as we as medical oncologists are focused on this specific oncology treatment recommendation, we must not forget about the supportive care. And you'll hear more from Dr. June Chan and colleagues about just the critical aspect of that and and really focusing a lot on the non-cancer related aspects because that can directly play a role in terms of how well patients tolerate therapies and and overall outcomes. So this just gives you a timeline and shows you just what I said that these are all the FDA approved therapies. This actually goes back all the way to 2004 when docetaxel was first approved on the basis of two separate phase three studies. And you can see the progress that has been made and you can see the frequency at which the, the therapies are approved is really increasing over time. Increasingly, we're looking at specific subsets of, of ADT resistant prostate cancer, not treating it as a homogenous a disease, but really trying to personalize our medicine as much as possible. And that's somewhat of a cliche, but it's true. And and Dr. Small went through the genomic testing, both inherited and within the tumor. And it's critically important that we do that in the setting so that we don't miss potential treatment options. Some other general considerations to consider. Uh, This genetic testing piece is really critical. Um, You know, you, you can't rely on one or the other. You really need to test both the inherited DNA and the tumor DNA testing. The tumor DNA testing could take the form of taking an old saved sample uh, of a, a previous biopsy, taking a new biopsy, or doing a liquid biopsy where we really look at the circulating tumor DNA and look for mutations there. And that's the way that we identify targeted therapies that may be applicable for a particular patient. Secondly, we don't really want to switch therapies prematurely based on PSA rises alone. And this is probably one of the most common things we discuss with patients is that they're feeling well and their scans are stable. The PSA is rising a little bit. We don't necessarily want to switch therapies. We really want to think about maximizing clinical benefit with each treatment that we give in this setting. And there is potential risk of prematurely switching therapies in that we uh, tend to run through our treatment options in a shorter amount of time. So it's really about clinical benefit. I understand it's very difficult. You know, PSA is a number that's staring you in the face. I'm sure if I were a patient, I'd feel the same way. We really want to try to think about it holistically and look at the scan. How's the patient feeling? Are they having pain? How's their appetite? What's their energy level like? What do the scans show? You know, all those factors are really important. As of now, we don't necessarily routinely use PSMA PET to really monitor response or progression in this setting. I think that that could be subject to change, but right now we don't really have good consensus criteria that tells us, well, what is the response on PSMA PET? What is progression? And there is a risk that we use PSMA PETs in this setting and we end up back in that same dilemma of prematurely switching therapies. And so we really wanna look at comprehensively, what are all the scan information telling us, rather than relying on a single test. And although not the focus of my talk, I do think this, this barrier and access to all the available diagnostic and therapeutic strategies is a significant challenge. And we made incredible advances, but unless we can equitably make sure that these are available to all our patients, you know, these, these advances are all for naught. But so this is a major focus of UCSF uh, and everyone, and we really need to come together as a community to make these treatments more affordable, make the PSMA PET scans more accessible, et cetera. So I'd like to think about, and this is something that we we think about uh, amongst all our practitioners in our group, is really what are all the different modalities of therapy that we think about in ADT-resistant metastatic prostate cancer? I'm not going to go into the details of every one of these, but just to say that there's a lot of options here, and and this is where the the nuance and the individualized decision-making is critical. We really think about all these different options, and at each juncture in time where a treatment switch is needed, what makes the most sense? And layered on top of all these standard of care options are all the clinical trials. And you could really bucket the clinical trials in any one of these categories. So you end up with this really long list of potential treatment options. And that's where, you know, we really try to get to work with patients and sort of figure out what makes the most sense for that particular patient. So just to kind of cover a couple of the the categories, just in broad strokes, but we really think about hormone therapy as still a cornerstone in the treatment of ADT-resistant prostate cancer. So ADT resistance or androgen deprivation therapy resistance doesn't equate to hormone therapy resistance. And we want to continue to block that testosterone or antigen receptor to maintain disease control. And this is why we do recommend fairly strongly that patients remain on Lupron or the equivalent despite having ADT resistance. We don't want to let the testosterone rise and fuel or accelerate cancer progression. Furthermore, we've learned over the last 10 to 15 years that Lupron does a pretty good job but we can even more potently block the androgen receptor and the androgen signaling pathway. Abiraterone and enzalutamide are the two classic FDA-approved therapies that we think about in this setting. And though not compared to -to head-to-head, really, in any setting, both appear to have similar effectiveness in the setting, so it really comes down to preference. We tend to use uh, abiraterone followed by enzalutamide just because there's a little bit less cross resistance And so for select patients, we will actually use one agent followed by the other. Switching gears and talking about targeted therapy. What I mean by targeted therapy is blocking specific proteins based on the genetics of the cancer. And this is where the genetic testing is so critical. So if I see a patient in clinic and they haven't yet had both the inherited DNA testing and the tumor DNA testing, Almost certainly, that'll be the crux of the discussion. Like, well, in order for us to really give that precise treatment recommendation, we really want to make sure we're not missing a targetable mutation. And just testing the tumor alone is not sufficient because sometimes you will miss uh, uh, mutations that are in the inherited DNA, and those could be targetable as well. So, when you add them all together within this DNA repair family, most commonly BRCA two, but there are others you add them all up, it's nearly a quarter of patients with ADT-resistant metastatic prostate cancer that will have a mutation in this family. So that's a sizable proportion of patients. Half are found with, approximately half are found within the tumor and half are inherited. So again, testing both is important. Why this matters? Well, we now have two FDA-approved PARP inhibitors for patients that have mutations in one of these genes. Olaparib has an indication that's a little bit broader and encompasses the sort of broader family whereas Rucaparib is is restricted more to BRCA1 and BRCA2. Both have shown that when the cancer harbors a mutation in one of these genes, depending on which specific gene, you can see a pretty dramatic response With a response rate probably in the 50 to 60% range and significant improvement in survival outcomes in, in the randomized studies that have been done. We do think there's some nuance here, and I didn't want to go into the weeds too much, but I did want to show you one uh, piece of data. This is what's called a PSA waterfall plot. So you really look at what's the change from baseline and PSA. This was a study called Triton2 uh, with the Rucaparib. And the nice thing here, what they did was they looked at, well, what was the likelihood response based on the specific mutation within this DNA repair family? And as you can see, Really, a lot of the benefit was was in the BRCA1 and 2 mutated cancers. And that is where we think probably there's the most sensitivity to PARP inhibition. Conversely, with ATM represented in purple, you see that unfortunately not a lot of the cancers respond, and most of the time the PSA rises. CDK12 is a little bit more mixed. That's represented in orange. But by and large, we think of CDK12 mutated prostate cancers as also having a fair amount of resistance to PARP inhibitors. And so there's a lot of active work ongoing to sort to say, well, it's great. Parma inhibitors work well for some of these mutations, but how do we better target some of the others within this family? So I want to cover immunotherapy and prostate cancer this is a huge topic, uh, a lot that could be said. Um, I think that, you know, to s- sort of summarize the state of the art right now, there are currently two FDA approved immunotherapies for prostate cancer. Provenge as a dendritic cell immune cell vaccine where your own immune cells are taken through a pheresis collection, We process them in the lab and they're really trained to try to attack the cancer cells. Actually, there have been multiple phase three randomized studies that have demonstrated that when you give Probench versus when you don't give it and you use other standard of care, you see an improvement in long-term survival. The challenge with this treatment, you can't really see that short-term benefit. PSA responses are seen in probably only about up to 5% of patients don't really see too much early evidence of scan improvement. So the most common question I get from patients after proven is, well, what good did this do me? It's hard to really make that quantified. But we know that if we're really trying to use all the therapies that have been shown to improve outcomes, and in this case with a pretty good safety profile, that this is a treatment we don't want to miss necessarily. And so, you know, we do provide, you know, try, do try to use some selection criteria for who might be a good patient. We think about an early ADT-resistant patient who's asymptomatic, no cancer-related symptoms, relatively low PSA, no visceral metastases, meaning no cancer in the organs like the lung or the liver. That's a good candidate to get the ProBench, which is given over about a month or six weeks, get that treatment in, and then we kind of move on and sort of use some of the other therapies that we have available. Pembrolism abracatruda is what's called a checkpoint inhibitor. This is a PD-1 blocker, and you've probably seen you know, a lot of uh, commercials and a lot of advertisements because this has become probably the most widely used cancer treatment across many cancers. When you treat all comers or garden variety prostate cancer with Keytruda, unfortunately, you don't see a lot of responses. The response rate's pretty low, less than 10%. And that's been tested in multiple studies. However, when we do that genomic testing that we've talked about, you do identify about two to three percent of patients that have what's called an MSI, MSI high cancer. There's a lot of mutations within this cancer, this type of cancer, and that produces more antigens for the immune system to recognize. When this MSI high pre- feature is present, you see a much higher chance of response to medicines like Keytruda. Not perfect, but you see a response rate somewhere in the 50 to 60 percent range. Just based on response rate alone, the FDA actually approved the use for Keytruda across any cancer that has this MSI high phenotype. This, I just want to give you one example. This is a patient of mine, a 73-year-old gentleman, ADT-resistant metastatic prostate cancer of the bone. He'd been through sequential abiraterone and thalutamide that, you know what, let's just check this somatic or tumor DNA testing with a circulating blood test. And so this was looking at tumor DNA that's floating around in the bloodstream, and lo and, below, lo and behold, he has an MSI-high tumor. And we started in Juan K. Trudy. You can see his PSA was really escalating. This is in July of last year, and it just fell off a cliff and remains undetectable to this day. So you can see these really, really striking and durable responses. So small percentage of patients that have MSI high, 2% to 3%, but you don't want to miss it because you can see these types of responses. I want to talk, spend a few minutes talking about chemotherapy. Um, the the FDA-approved therapies have been shown to extend survival are like docetaxel and cabazitaxel. And what I tell patients is that when used selectively and in the right context, these treatments can be very important to patients. They can achieve a very rapid response. So for a patient that has maybe more fast-progressing cancer that's becoming symptomatic, few things can achieve a response as rapidly as chemotherapy. We don't aim to use them indefinitely. The way I think about it is maybe treating for a finite period of time and really trying to suppress the cancer as best we can, and then moving on to perhaps the non-chemotherapy options. We do use a fair amount of platinum-based chemotherapy, most common carboplatin, we add it to one of these uh, two agents, jostotaxel and clobazotaxel. I think we do that more commonly than most places, because there actually is now randomized data that tells us that in certain contexts, patients would maybe have more aggressive types of prostate cancers, this special type of prostate cancer called neuroendocrine cancer that just looks different under the microscope, or cancer in the organs like the liver, We want to uh, maybe more potently suppress the cancer and so we'll think about adding carboplatin in that context. Finally, I don't want to forget uh, uh, supportive care. Radiopharmaceuticals and lutetium you'll hear about in the next talk. I think that supportive care is really critical and it really requires a multidisciplinary approach. We're really lucky at UCSF and you've heard this throughout the day that we have such fantastic colleagues across all our departments to really help manage patients in the optimal way as possible we have a very tight connection with our symptom management slash palliative care clinic and really focusing on just that pain control managing fatigue all the other side effects that can happen with our therapy and symptoms related to the cancer itself i don't want to miss mentioning bone protection so there are medicines that can decrease the risk of fractures or other complications in the bone related to the cancer exgeva and zometa being the two most common that are used and so we really you know, focus on the supportive care therapies during the course of our uh, conversations with patients. Radiation oncology can play a crucial role, especially if there are particular spots that are causing pain. We use radiation focally quite commonly. Urine obstruction and other complications related to the cancer within the prostate itself can be an issue. And so we really still stay very closely engaged with our urology colleagues. And so really it's a multidisciplinary approach that I think is really crucial to optimally managing these patients. So just the final slide, the take home points. I I hope I've emphasized there are many treatment options. I didn't get into too many of the details, but just to say that outcomes continue to improve for patients. We continue to work hard on developing new therapies within each of those different buckets, those different modalities of therapy. And our goal is really to maximize the duration of benefit which with each of the treatments we apply. Genetic testing, I think we're hammering that message home. Let's test both compartments, inherited and tumor DNA. And the support of care is absolutely crucial. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.